This is a podcast from the Business Times. Which of these two economies is a better long-term bet? India or China? What? India? Yeah, I had the same reaction when I heard some economists actually feel it's India. Sure, demographics will play a big role, but more people doesn't necessarily mean a better economy. Or does it? Plus, there are other factors to consider. So how do these two giants stack up against each other? And what would it mean in terms of opportunities for investors? Welcome to Money Hacks, a podcast series by The Business Times, where we explore useful financial tips to help you on your money-managing and wealth-growing journey. I'm your host, Howie Lim. And helping us today is Daryl Ho, Senior Investment Strategist at DBS's Chief Investment Office. Thanks for joining us today, Daryl. So investing in India, I can't say we've heard a lot about it. Yeah, which is surprising because uh, if you look at IMF's latest forecasts, India is actually projected to grow at a real GDP growth rate of 6 to 7% per annum over the next five years. But if you compare it with what they project as the average world growth rate of 3%, this is pretty remarkable and this spells potential. And I think IMF's forecasts pretty reliable and so I think it's worth looking at. Yeah, but China's not recovering as well as people had hoped after they lifted their COVID zero policy, right? So there's still growth potential, you're saying? So if you draw a comparison, IMF as well had a projection for China. And yes, it's not as stellar. They projected 4 to 5% GDP growth. Again, that is still better than the world average. But we must remember that China is coming from a different starting point, right? They did really well in the early 2000s, right? So 7 to 8% GDP growth back then was not unusual. And so they are just kind of in this path where it is slowly declining. And as we are going through and what we're seeing in China is really a transitioning phase. So growth, yes, it's expected to come in at 4 to 5%, but the nature of growth might be changing. And I think that's what the policymakers are communicating. And I think that's where the opportunity is, right? When there's transition, yes, it is uncertain, but there are opportunities that we want to talk about as well. Didn't China make policy changes in October? Investors still seem, though, to be hovering on the sidelines and not making moves. The markets in general will always pivot between fear and greed, right? So I think in October, uh, there was a lot of fear after the party congress. And so the market sold off really badly. And then there was a lot of greed when they realized that the market was going to reopen. So there was this pivot and we always get too excitable either way. Rather than let asset prices dictate what our sentiments are, it's worth looking at the underlying forces and knowing how the economy is transiting to kind of know where the opportunities are rather than let asset prices and its volatility kind of sway us in all directions and and have no bearing, so to speak. So what are the drivers making China worth investing in, Daryl? China has been very used to a manufacturing-led growth. They were the export hub of the world for much of the last few decades. And I think it realizes that that's not the path sustainably to go for the long run. There's this thing we know as the middle income trap, where if you are a manufacturing hub, eventually you gain success, salaries improve, and then you become too expensive and manufacturers want to move their bases elsewhere, right? This is the middle income trap. And you know that these models are not sustainable for the long run. China recognizes that. So moving away from manufacturing implies you need a productivity-led growth which innovation does very well. And I think that's where you see a lot of top-down directives to move towards innovation. So frontier technologies like AI, biotechnology even, quantum computing, these are at the forefront. And this is going to be the next driver of growth that would take the reins from manufacturing 
that has done China very well over the last couple of decades. The other driver of growth, I would say, is that you know, China is very famously 1.4 billion people. A lot of them have become middle class. That was a great growth driver. But the next driver then is now the middle class becoming an affluent class. And as we know it, there are about more than 500 billionaires in China, right? And this figure is second only to the US. So if you think about it, there is a lot of vast untapped potential for the affluent and the wealthy and their associated spending needs, right? Which is very different from traditional middle class. So I think these are drivers that is worth paying attention to in China. Aside from really just market volatility that we're seeing, I think these are still long-standing trends that we have to keep in the back of our minds to know where to capitalize on. Uh, India doesn't seem to have many of those drivers you listed for China. But the one thing they do have we talked about is that large population as well. What would, say, a pros list for India look like next to the China one? You've kind of hit the nail on the head, right? The large population. Earlier this year, we heard that India has surpassed China in its population size. So demographics are definitely a big tailwind for India. And the median age of India is 28 years old, against the global average of 30. And if you want to do comparisons with China, China's median age is 38. So that's a big 10 years more, you see. So the demographic tailwind for India is definitely much larger because a younger median age means a larger working age population that you can tap into. It also means that this is a working age population that can eventually increase their spending power and that drives a consumption type model that we can anticipate for the Indian economy. So the other aspect of India is really their source of talent. There are 1.5 million engineering graduates coming out of India every year. And Sundar Pichai from Google or Satya Nadella from Microsoft, these are graduates from Indian universities as well. So you cannot say that they don't have the talent or what it takes to lead the global companies on the world stage. They definitely have the talent. And I think these are latent forces that India has that it's really worth looking into in the next decade. And to cap it off, the World Economic Forum anticipates that 80% of Indian households will become middle class by 2030. 80%. So if you think about how China brought up the middle class and the tailwinds that followed, it is tempting to kind of look at India and seeing that trajectory and understanding that, you know, we've had a model of this before. Where else can we capitalize in India in the same trajectory that China followed in the early 2000s? I think it's an exciting prospect to think about that. Oh, it sounds like you think India's gunning to win the tech and even the AI race. I mean, we've known for a long time it won't be just a two-horse race. Your money's on India then. AI technology right now, the leaders are really the US and China. So in terms of technological advantage, these two countries have it ahead at present. For India particularly, I think the IT services sector is something to look out for. Because IT services, I think we understand that this digitalization is a secular trend that is not going away. It's irreversible. IT services constitute a large part of the value chain, whether it's cybersecurity, software development, software integration. India their IT services sector is a big part in this. And if you think about the IT services sector, your Tata consultancies, your Infosys, if you put together the top five IT services companies in India, look at the cash balance. Over the last 10 years, they've averaged around $7 billion. It's very reminiscent of big tech in the US. And you know how well of a run big tech has had over the last many years because of this irreversible trend. So again, they have the potential, right? When you have a huge cash balance, you have a strong balance sheet, you have the ability to invest, do R&D. These are really good tailwinds and, and really good supporting factors for the IT services companies in India. So tech-related, I think, IT services in India worth looking at. 
Still to come, we staple Daryl Ho's foot to the ground and find out what's worth looking into in the China and India markets for retail investors. More in a moment. Join senior correspondent Leslie Yee on Property BT for insights to help you on your property investment journey. Every fourth Thursday of the month, with your trusted partner for property information, go to bt.sg podcasts to download. And now, back to Money Hacks from the Business Times. Daryl Ho, Senior Investment Strategist at DBS's Chief Investment Office. So, Daryl, we've talked about the long-term drivers in these two territories. Let's get down to the task at hand and start with China. What's worth looking into there and why? In the China market, if we think about those tailwinds that we've talked about before, kind of like a pivot away from manufacturing towards innovation, definitely we want to look at the digital economy in China. China is responsible for six of the top 15 most popular apps downloaded. If I say TikTok, it rolls off your tongue. Everyone knows what that is. And they've even conquered the US market. So they're really good at these digital ecosystems, right? WeChat in China is really powerful. As we know with social media, when you have a platform with so many eyeballs, you have the ability to reach billions. You have the ability to do targeted advertising. You have the ability to monetize. And so... It's kind of a virtuous cycle. So I think this idea that they're going to innovate and create is going to do very well for digital economies. And this system that China has is already going to be very beneficial for them. So it's worth looking into. The other one is the tailwind was uh, the wealthy class and its associated spending. So this may not necessarily always lead to opportunities in China. I'm sure there are. But one of the themes that we like is really the luxury theme in Europe particularly. When the reopening happened in China, it's not surprising to us at all that the European luxury counters did so well, right? Bernard Annault of LVMH was the richest person in the world at some point this year. So beneficiaries lie outside of China itself simply because the wealthy class has that much spending power. The other theme we do like when it comes to the wealthy is really the banking sector. And China is already home to the largest banks in the world. These banks have strong balance sheets, low non-performing loans. They're pretty strong. And loan growth has been healthy. So the traditional banking sector is doing really well. Add to that, the fact that the wealthy now opens an avenue for wealth-type banking businesses, which we've seen do very well over the last few years as well. This is a new avenue for growth for the banking sector, which is already, if you think about the Chinese banks, they've done pretty well. They've paid an average of 7 to 8% dividends consistently over the last few years. So these are returns that are pretty stable. And I think finally, um, related to banking is the insurance sector. Chinese, as you become wealthier, it's natural that you need insurance. In China, especially, there's a potential because right now, the penetration rates of insurance in China is right around 2%. Put in perspective, I think in Singapore, it's 11%. So if you think about just a model of growth, as the wealthy class grows and their needs evolve, these are just a number of things that we can look out for in China. Mm, That means India isn't looking so good in our side-by-side comparison, right? What do you reckon? So India, the consumer may not be the level of wealth that we see in China. You can't just transplant it. But you can think of them as, you know, kind of like a step behind and on its way. And so a lot of companies in India are recognising the potential for these consumers. Like we said, the WEF has anticipated 80% of India to be working class by 2030. The FMCG companies already see that. So consumer staples are really a big play. 
And they have invested and set up shop in India because they recognize the potential, right? Your Unilevers, your Nestle's, your PNGs, they all have presence in India recognizing the potential. So it's anticipated for the market for FMCG consumer staples to grow at 15% per annum over the next few years. So I think these are not small numbers. It's in line with the demographic trend. So I think it's something to pay attention to. It's a different play, but doesn't mean that it's not worth playing. Uh, the other thing is banking as well, right? So if you think about China's banking potential, India has a slight different nuance to it where a large part of the population is underbanked and the nature of banking has changed as well. You know, you don't have a lot of brick and mortar type uh, retail shops, retail banking counters anymore. A lot of banking has shifted to the palm of your hand with the mobile phones. So something like 95% of India's rural population is actually not banked. They do not have access to a branch. But if they have access to the internet and a phone in their hand, they have access to the full suite of services. So this is a vast potential to tap. It's not wealth management per se, but growth of brick and mortar banking through the services of digital apps is going to spearhead a different type of growth, but nonetheless growth for the banking sector in India. So I think these are worth looking at as well. Okay, so if we look at India as a couple of steps behind China, if you will, what happens to, say, timelines and expectations I mean, when can we see returns, so to speak? Yep, Howie, so timeline-wise, when we talk about demographics, you know, these are very long-standing trends. So as an investor, this is not a trade you put on in a day, right? I think we have to recognize that tailwinds sometimes take time to follow through. Demographic trends, look at the projections that we're talking about, 2030, you know, and beyond. So investors do have to be patient to see how these play out. And it's not going to come in a straight line as well, for sure. Uh, we talk about India somehow following in the footsteps with the potential, definitely. Again, we also have to be aware of some differences, right? So China's political organization is really centered around the CCP and decision-making under an authority like that tend to be very fast. In India, for example, it's a bit different, right? So the lower house of parliament has something like 37 different political parties. And we know that when you have a lot of different uh, ideologies, different ideas, the US debt debate would tell you that sometimes having different ideas and, and that sort of framework makes it very hard to push decisions quickly. These are challenges we have to be mindful of as well, despite the fact that the raw material is there. I would say that investors who are looking for this opportunity need to be able to have a really long-term 10-year or more type of horizon to understand the benefits. I mean, the comparison really is with China, right? If I told you in the year 2000 that this is going to be a 10-year, multi-year trend, multi-decade trend, it would be hard to see at the start. But on looking back, you realize that, yes, that was the case because everything was in place for China as an economy to grow and grow leaps and bounds. Really, this is a long-term, something to watch out for, something that we cannot let the volatility of markets on a day-to-day -day basis kind of sway our outlook. But I feel that doesn't really help investors today per se. We're talking about people freaking out about their portfolios now, their retirement adequacies, all the folk worry they don't have a lot of runway, bonds don't keep pace with inflation. But I get it, no risk, no gain. Are there really opportunities in China and India to help with that right now? Okay, there are a lot of things going on, right? So the... Oh, oops. The, uh, these... <laughs> oh, sorry. It's good for breaking down, right? Because at the start of the year, we actually launched the strategy that 60-40 is back. It was not back. It was doing really badly last year because stocks and bonds moved with the same correlation. Today, it is a different story. If you look at valuations for equities, they're not as lofty as you saw them a couple of years ago. On top of that, for bonds in particular, we do really like. And if you look at yields on very high quality investment-grade bonds, not even very long-term, 
three to five years, you're getting 5%. And these are very healthy levels. I mean, levels that you don't see very often. So if you're worried, it's the best time for you because you don't have to take much risk. You can take investment-grade risk, low default risk, and get a consistent 5% return, which is very, very healthy if you don't want to overstretch and feel as though you are putting a lot of capital at risk. So I think this is uh, something worth looking into. We are always talking about the barbell strategy where your portfolio has to have elements of growth and elements of income. So we talked about bonds, right? The element of income there is quite undisputable. Right? The level of use you're seeing today are really favorable for that. So income generation is plenty for today's market. So for growth, we do still like US companies because that's really the heart of innovation. And the semiconductor industry would tell you that, yes, you can't run away from growth based on how well they've done over the last couple of weeks. But I think what we're trying to say here is that don't ignore the global forces at play, where growth can happen as well. And all that we've talked about in China and India, these may not follow the same cookie-cutter layouts that you have in the US, but it's growth nonetheless and double-digit in some sort of forecasts as well. So with the framework of growth and income, this barbell strategy, I think it sets you up very well, regardless of your time horizon. Because on the income side, you're getting very regular payouts. Yes, some people say, yes, time horizons may be long, but depending on your risk appetite, you could always allocate some to growth to kind of see how these longer-term structural tailwinds play at the end of the day. And with this balance of growth and income, you'll be very well poised because the income gives you that stability, but also gives you that base to work on so that you can take a little bit more risk in the growth element that can be more volatile, but because of the volatility can get you the returns to actually trump inflation in the long run. And for equities in particular, its track record against inflation has been pretty good. So you can't run away from growth. Daryl, always a pleasure. Thanks, Hari. Next time, we explore salary independence. What exactly does it mean? And can it really happen? Join us then. From The Business Times, I'm Howie Lim. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is meant to provide general information only. SPH Media accepts no liability for loss arising from any reliance on the podcast or use of third parties' products and services. Please consult professional advisors for independent advice.